from KQED. The budget showdown, the clock is ticking. Could we please have some budget news out of Sacramento? That's the uh, big topic on this week's KQED California Politics podcast. For the week ending Friday, June 12th, I'm John Myers from KQED News with Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project and my KQED News colleague Marisa Lagos, who is in San Francisco, even though we all sound like we are together here in Sacramento. And... um, we're a podcast divided. <laughs> I was foiled. I was foiled by the government. Well, Amtrak, but, you know. Close enough. Close enough. But that divided, that's the great place to start. We're going to talk about the status of the state budget, um, a little bit of our weekly political side dish, little nuggets of things happening in the news to, to ponder, and then a, a discussion of... Um, uh, of a changing of the guard, I think in some ways you would call it, in terms of the way of public opinion surveys in California and what the world of politics makes of uh, everybody's favorite thing, polls. But let's go back to the budget. So here we are. It is Friday the 12th. We have delayed this podcast, delayed it for all those people who listen to it on Thursday night. And for what? What do we get out of that delay? An extra night's sleep. <laughs> Bupkus in terms of an actual budget deal. The legislature uh, has its budget plan that the conference committee, budget conference committee of the two houses, uh, move forward earlier in the week. It is a uh, plan that does not have the blessing of the man in the corner office, Governor Jerry Brown. And so they plan to put that budget up for a vote on Monday in both houses and send it along to the governor. Before we dig into numbers and things, um, Anthony, Marisa, anybody jump in? What do we make of the atmospherics here to start with? Well, I'd, first to say, I mean, you can't blame us for being hopeful, right? Like, I think we everybody was thought that they would be voting on a budget by uh, the 12th. Um, but it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like there wasn't as much urgency. It seems like the legislature figured out that they can uh, meet their constitutional mandates by just voting on something. And... I, I don't know. What do you think, Anthony? It, it, does any Is anybody in a hurry? No. I mean, I think there's more than a, a constitutional dynamic at play here. I mean, ever since the court case that said all the legislature had to do was pass a budget by the 15th and still get paid, that alleviated that pressure. What this allows them to do, what allows Democrats in the legislature to do is to appease all their constituencies. I mean, look at this. Look at the budget the legislature is going to pass. $2.2 billion in spending above and beyond what the governor is proposing. Spending on everything from childcare to medical reimbursement rates to, you know, I mean, to you name it. And so this is a way for the legislature uh, to be the good cop, if, if you will, to these constituents. And and the governor is all too happy to be the bad cop. I mean, I think, you know, we can expect. Um, I mean, this document is almost a statement of values from the from the Democrats and the legislature more than it is a spending plan that they expect to be signed into law. Well, and everything in this budget plays to everybody's political strength, right? So so as you just said, Anthony, absolutely right. The, the, the budget as it stands that the legislature passed plays to their strength of their constituency. We need to um, uh, restore services that were cut during the recession. We need to look at extra funding for higher education. We need to do a lot of different things. The governor's constituency is frugality. That's what he has won all of his elections on. And so his ability to go back and say, eh, eh, plays exactly to his strength. And, and it's, it's, again, at the top line, before we kind of get into some of those numbers that uh, Anthony uh, was just alluding to, I find it fascinating as to what the budget process has become over these last five years. Since the passage of Prop 25, where it's a majority vote budget in each house, we don't need 
uh, bipartisan support. We don't need two-thirds vote. Um, we don't need Republicans then, which means we don't have stakeouts. We don't have drama into the summer. But it is a very different kind of budget process in a way that I think even the people who were ostensibly the good government reformers talked about, because it doesn't necessarily make the budget process better, I think is an, a fair analysis. It makes it faster. It may not necessarily make it better. Though. Well, I mean, I think you could make the argument that to some extent, you know, faster is better because because you need a budget. You need to start the fiscal year with state programs and departments and education, schools, you know, knowing what they can spend. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, Anthony, made that's a really interesting point. I mean, like, do you think that was the plan all along? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think it, it's a real opportunity. Look, there's no reason. I mean, I don't know if it's a coordinated thing, right? But but there's no reason, there's no incentive for legislative Democrats to be stingy at this point when they know they've got a backstop in the governor's office that will do some of the dirty work for them. And when this budget is passed and there will be some compromise that will be on on the on the parameters, right, on the revenue numbers, that will be a lot closer to the governor's than to the LAOs. That's my bold prediction here. And And when that happens, a lot of the spending priorities of the legislature will be cut, but they will be able to Go to the doctors, right? I mean, those Medi-Cal reimbursement rates, the governor's been pretty firm on those about about what he thinks about that. And so when that's cut, they'll be able to point their fingers to the governor and say, hey, guys, we tried. It's that big, bad governor that did all the dirty Yeah, work. I couldn't agree more. And were you going to jump in with some numbers? Because I was going to start listing some of these things that really are just like a laundry list of uh, or a wish list more to speak from uh, the from the left, I think. Right. Let's also, too, talk about that broad uh, number moment from, uh, for, for just a, a thing here. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Anthony uh, made the point a moment ago that if you look in totality, there's a couple of billion dollars more in the revenue universe. If you start trying to kind of parse it down a little bit, uh, Prop 98 expenditures uh, under the legislature's budget in the coming year would hit the $50 billion mark, uh, slightly higher than the governor because of course they're using higher revenues, means more money there. Um, but if you if you start to try to kind of take out a few things, because what you heard the conference committee saying and you heard staffers talking about is that they had they think they've identified some additional savings beyond what the governor's May revision had. And even the governor's administration sat in conference committee the other night and said they accept some of those projections. If you take some of those numbers and you kind of net it all out to get like a net number, I come up with a number that's about eight hundred and fifty five million dollars more than the governor in the budget year to come, in the 2015-16 budget. Now, of course, this budget also looks backward, so it changes the universe of numbers in the 2014-15 year. So I think when you get into some of this, you do get over that billion-dollar mark. But if you're looking for the middle ground place at some point, uh, somewhere in that 700 to 800 million dollar range, I would suspect is where the negotiations have to fall about how much more above the May revision the governor's willing to accept and how much below what they've already put forward uh, Democrats in the legislature are willing to accept. W- with with that, Marisa, I mean, talk about what stood out to you in some of the program money. Well, I mean, I guess that's sort of the big question here. I, you know, there's a lot in here. There's the expansion of early education and child care, which, which the Democrats in both houses have been talking about a lot. There's even more money for the UC and CSU systems and Cal grants. Um, you know, there's this uh, re- restoration of in-home supportive services uh, cuts that happened in recent years and something that um, 
some Democrats have worked long for, which is eliminating this maximum family grant for uh, welfare recipients. You know, Medi-Cal, as Anthony already mentioned, um, providing coverage to undocumented children and increasing rates and restoring dental benefits. I mean, I guess my question now is then how how do the Democrats end up picking the actual winners out of this list as they negotiate with the governor? Because this really is a little bit of everything for almost everyone. I mean, they can do it one of two ways, right? One, they can come to agreement on some things in, in a budget that they will send to the governor. The other opportunity is to allow to send it out of balance and the governor blue pencil uh, a few hundred million dollars out of the budget. Either way, um, you know, and, and we'll see. It, it'll be interesting to see how this legislature. Remember, these are this is the first go around for this tandem of Kevin DeLeon and, and Tony Atkins in, in a budget. It will be interesting to, to see tactically how they decide to do this. But I mean, I think if you're looking at plausible outcomes, it's it's one of those two, right? And I would not be surprised at all to see a, a final budget after this initial budget, or uh, that a, a final budget goes to Brown and that there's sort of a negotiated agreement on what the governor uh, can blue pencil. There will be some some grousing after the, there always is after those vetoes are announced. But uh, but in terms of how this plays out between now and June 30th, I think that's sort of the most likely scenario. Well, and that's the real danger, isn't it? If you're the legislature, is if you say, great, blue pencil it, Governor, you know, line item veto that spending out of there, and we look great because we didn't compromise at all on what we believe, um, you don't know for sure how far the blue pencil will go, and you don't know for sure which programs it'll be. And yes, yep. you may, even if you have the negotiated, you know, handshake on it, Governors have been known to still go back in there and have some things that they really never got quite yeah. comfortable with, and and they scratched them right out of the document. Well, we saw that with yeah. the with, with Schwarzenegger, but there was, but I th- I think generally speaking, the level of trust and the and the and the uh, the camaraderie among this group of Democrats right. is probably better than what we've seen and than some other examples in recent memory, including Gray Davis. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's not just a partisan thing always. Agreed. But I also think that is a, a bit of a dangerous proposition for the leadership, you know, to 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 rely on what the governor does, because I think that they both, you know, each the speaker, Speaker Atkins, um, pro tem Dalian, you know, have some of their own sort of pet uh, priorities in here. Their membership does, too. Um, I mean, it, it could be a little of both, right? They could, you know, send it to him for his blue pencil and still be talking about what that's going to look like. I'm going to go back, though, if I can, to what we said a moment ago, where I'm just going to kind of, uh, you know, play point counterpoint here about, you know, better budget system or not better budget system. Because, Marisa, you you made the point, you know, of the certainty that people know it doesn't drag out so long. But again, look at the look at the fine parsing of Prop 25 that we have here, because all Prop 25 says is that the legislature has to pass the budget bill by midnight, uh, June 15th, or the end of the day into the very evening of June 15th. So if they pass a budget bill, that is not what the final deal reveals. And then they took, and I'm not saying they're going to do it this here podcast audience. I'm just playing what if. They could take ostensibly weeks to negotiate the rest of the deal and the changes in um, what's called a budget bill junior, as it's called around the Capitol, a, 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 a sort of a, um, a heightened trailer bill, an implementation bill of some sort that changes the numbers in some way. In other words, there is no hard and fast to stop the negotiating 
by July 1st. And I'm not saying they're going to do that. But again, I get back to the point where, you know, if we're just passing a bill to pass a bill by June 15th that doesn't really reflect anything, how much more certainty is that? I mean, they're getting along and that's great. So maybe it won't happen this year. But systemically, how much more certainty is there under the system? Well, I mean, you again, looking at this particular budget, when you look at, I mean, you're talking about less than 2% of the overall budget where the where the disagreements are. And, and these types of fights are are inevitably easier when you're talking about um, when you're arguing over largesse and surplus than you are um, fighting over over scarce resources. And so, uh, yes, I mean, I, I think sort of if you're looking downstream to perhaps another governor and or a different economic situation, that um, that that there's the possibility that Prop 25 uh, that there's there's still some inherent problems that are not going to be solved by by prop 25 but uh but overall i mean it's amazing what a few extra billion dollars can do uh for for a budget negotiation and i fully expect this one like the last like the last couple uh will be relatively painless yeah i mean i think that at the end of the day we have with the governors may revise you know a floor of spending that i think most all all really all programs could count on. So and I and I can't see the governor trying to stretch this out beyond July 1st. So um I think that you know as Anthony said it's a very different situation when you're when you're cutting than when you're you know trying to add back. And so while all of these programs and people that represent them and are in them I'm sure are hopeful that they'll get as much as possible out of the pie. I think they all know that this is a better budget than we've seen in a long time. So you know the losers and winners are very relative to the budget situation we're in. So stay tuned. We've got, I mean, I think next week is going to be an interesting, uh, it'll be an interesting podcast, right? Come on. Let's, 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 let's promote ourselves. Tune there, in next week. Is there any other kind of podcast, really? <laughs> I mean, seriously, we're amazing. That's why they all listen, right? And with that self-congratulatory moment. Now, winners and losers, next week on the KQED California Politics Podcast. Before we hit our second topic, let's do our side dish, our little moment for a couple of political morsels in the universe of uh, politics and government. Uh, Marisa, I'm going to start with you since uh, we've been talking about spending and money and government spending. I think uh, your side dish kind of hits there. You can find Marisa Lagos at M Lagos on Twitter. What's the side dish? Well, um, more news out of uh, D.C. that affects California this week. Um, there was a provision in a key transportation funding bill ha- uh, passed by the House of Representatives this week that could essentially hurt um, the ability of the high-speed rail, uh, proposed high-speed rail system in California. Um, this is kind of an ongoing fight between uh, Republicans, California Republicans in Congress who who oppose the very expensive program. Um, it, it, you know, it remains to be seen as to whether it'll come to pass. And, and High Speed Rail Authority is saying that the amendment would have no material impact on the program. But um, it's basically this rule that would say that the rail project couldn't continue taking federal funds um, if they didn't have matching money. So, you know, there's so many unknowns about high-speed rail, but it is interesting to me that we keep seeing these attempts to really undercut what's what the governor has made one of his top priorities. Um, And I think, you know, there's been a couple other newsworthy issues around this, including a a pushback uh, down south asking that they put the 
train underground, which would be enormously expensive. Um, but it just seems like, you know, every month we hear a little bit more of, of these sort of attacks on the program. And it'll be, I think, you know, the governor, I think his, prior, his priorities right now are the drought and the budget. But this is definitely on that list. And, you know, he only has a few more years in office. I think it's a pretty interesting week in high-speed rail. I mean, you flagged the first one. I mean, I think the Jeff Denham um, uh, chess move, as I guess I would call it, was a good one because we have seen this whole push at the high-speed rail authority uh, with all of these court fights over the bond money to keep asking the Obama administration for more flexibility in how it has to match state dollars to those federal dollars. So here, right, as you said, it, Denham is trying to kind of you know, turn the tap off on that uh, on that leeway there. But yeah, I'm glad you referenced that too. That hearing in Southern California, which was a pretty intense hearing about where the train's going to go through, uh, property values. There was this great anecdote about how a realtor in Santa Clarita said that property values near where the train line is supposed to come are already dropping. I mean, this is going to be a I don't want to use the train metaphor of, boy, this thing's going to start to get some speed going down the train. But there, there's a lot. There. I mean, it was an interesting week in in the back and forth over this long-going saga. Yeah, and I think it really shows the challenges of implementing really sort of big-picture, you know, capital projects in this day and age in a state that's as crowded as as it is and that has so many different constituencies and um, where we have seen a sort of history of, you know, rising costs, like at the Bay Bridge. I mean, the the news out of that still hasn't ended. and, you know, it, it speaks to, I think, a lot of people, there's opposition to it, but I think there's a lot of just wariness of, of government. And um, it's, you know, it's it's a big, big project. And I think it's going to take a lot of championing from folks who, who support it to push back against both the resident concerns, but also, like we said, this ongoing fight to, to defund it. From big projects to um, uh, let's do a big fight as the next side dish. I think that's Anthony's. Uh, I see it on the plate to use this uh, food <laughs> metaphor. I'm, I'm, I want to reach for it, but he's he's going to to describe it first. Anthony York, who you can find on Twitter at uh, Anthony York forty nine. What's the side dish? Uh, uh, it's a saga of a different sort. The uh, the fight over mandatory vaccinations of children. But can I just children. say, don't you think that that is probably the singest don't you think that is probably the single most talked about biggest public debate bill in the Capitol yep, this year this and year. one of the biggest ones in a long time? I mean, in terms yeah. of this this uh, fodder and discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing that comes close, I think, is, is right to die. And I don't think the the momentum behind that bill has been I mean, it hasn't been anything close to the intensity we've seen on the vaccination bill. And we saw an interesting procedural development this week. It was just a little what they call a me too in the uh, Assembly Health Committee and the long line of people among the long line of people um, coming up to the microphone to express their support for the bill was the governor's cabinet secretary, Dana Williamson, who did not identify herself as a member of the administration for purposes of her testimony. She was there simply as a mother of four, as she said. But uh, but worth noting, I mean, clearly, I, I don't think it's been any secret that the governor from uh, from the beginning has been sort of inclined to favor this proposal. Uh, but this is just another reminder. I mean, seeing his his one of his top aides uh, in that committee room, I mean, that that didn't happen without the governor's knowledge. And so while she wasn't there as a member of the administration, she was certainly there 
with the governor's blessing. And I thought that was uh, that was just an interesting little procedural thing for those of us who uh, who watch these kinds of things. Would you say, Anthony, um, from your sense of being around here, um, just on, on, on the SB 277 track through the legislature, so it, get, it got one committee hearing in the Assembly versus three in the Senate. It got Assembly health. It now goes to the Assembly floor. There is a right, feeling no of people I talk to. Pardon? No approaches right. on the Assembly side, yeah. There is a feeling of people I talk to that um, this thing's going to come up for a floor vote fast and it's going to go to the governor's desk fast, assuming it passes the assembly, which I think most people think it will, because there is a sense among its supporters that they don't want to give any more fuel to this discussion. They just want it over. They want it done. They want it on the governor's desk. I get this feeling that it's going to be a we're, we're, we could see it as a, on a floor vote a lot earlier than we see a lot of bills. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, you know, and I don't think we'll be done talking about it then. It wouldn't surprise me. If we saw a referendum effort and and given the the low signature threshold, I mean, I don't know if there's money to qualify a referendum. Well, that's the Anthony, great question. You're but... killing me, really. That you know, not taking a position on this. I was just happy we could stop talking about it. <laughs> well, no, you know, but it's a really good it's a good point because I thought the same thing. I mean, I I mean, this is this is a passionate issue, and people are you know people are not going to be. Uh, mollified who are opposed to the bill. Yeah. And so, I mean, that is the kind of thing you see a referendum. But again, the, the, the number the number of signatures that you'd have to get in 90 days, and we can talk about this on another podcast, would be, um, would be really tough unless somebody with money came forward. That's what I, I would like to say. I mean, I do think that as vocal and um, sort of strong as the opposition has been, I'm not sure... You know, if you look at polling, if you look at the actual opt out vaccination rate, it, it's not clear to me whether they would have the sort of critical mass behind them unless, you know, a wealthy donor really stepped forward. So, yeah. and it, But it is fascinating. I just note that, yeah, the way it's been handled in the Senate versus the Assembly, um, it almost seems like the Assembly kind of looked over and said, well, you guys you guys had all these hearings, so we don't need to. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 kind of a brutal one and it, and I don't know if you had asked any of us a year ago if this would be like the hottest bill of the year I don't think we would have predicted it no indeed not so uh, last but not least I hope I'm not least uh, my side dish for this week on the California politics podcast and my Twitter handle John Myers is a is a little bit of the resurgence of um, the politics of oil in California which we we saw so many fights and debates through the decades. Um, people always mark the uh, the spill off the uh, the coast of Santa Barbara into the Santa Barbara Channel in 1969 as kind of a galvanizing moment for the debate over oil and the environmental movement across the country. And so California played that role. We've seen oil come back and forth in a discussion through the years. And so now we're back, of course, by a spill very close, not in the same place, but very close uh, to that uh, that other location now off the coast of Santa Barbara County. Um, so we saw a couple of different things happen, uh, legislation pushed forward, and a new select committee. So the select committee of the state senate is going to hold a hearing in uh, Santa Barbara County at the end of June to talk about um, oil production, oil response uh, to to spills, those kinds of things, uh, led by State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, the Democrat of that area. Um, but also two other things that I thought were just worth noting. One is a piece of legislation that bans any potential new drilling off the northern California coast. This is uh, north of the Farallon Islands. Um, that's fine, though none, no project has been moving forward there for a very long time. 
Um, backers will say, well, we had to close it off. Other people will say, well, yes, but there's some symbolic value in politics to, to moving forward on that. And the other one, and Anthony and I were, were trading the stories of remembering covering this uh, before we started the podcast, was a bill that uh, Senator Jackson moved forward to uh, that would officially ban any new drilling that goes to the area off the Santa Barbara County coast known as Tranquion Ridge. Um, and Tranquion Ridge holds a, a place for me in this because I remember this story very well. I used to work down on the coast and covered oil issues there. But uh, podcast listeners who follow politics may remember that uh, towards the end of the Schwarzenegger era, during the recession times that came forward, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger had a proposal to uh, get money for the state budget uh, that would be paid by the company that wanted to drill off of this area called Tranquion Ridge. They would take a platform that was sitting in federal waters and they would run slant drilling um, into state waters to access this oil in this area called Tranquion Ridge, T-Ridge. It didn't happen. The State Lands Commission uh, blocked the proposal uh, led by Democratic uh, uh, state officials. And so Tranquion Ridge kind of went away. This is appears to be the final chapter of Tranquion Ridge, where uh, this would make it completely illegal to go after that oil. Of course, the company in question, Plains Exploration, uh, moved on, and somebody else uh, is now in that mix, and nobody's ever brought the idea forward. But um, the politics of oil... Uh, especially when something happens like that spill, is still very potent in California. People watch it. People talk about it. So there's that for a little bit of side dish. So let's move to that uh, last topic. Uh, always looking for a transition like I am on the on the politics podcast of things that people talk about. Um, somebody who measured what Californians talked about um, passed away this uh, past week. And um, probably worth talking about, I think, in the context of what the work he did for his whole life means in California politics. Mervyn Field, the longtime pollster uh, based in San Francisco, uh, passed away earlier this week at the age of 94. Uh, the eponymous Field poll um, became what it is in California, this, this marker of how people track political campaigns and how Californians feel. Uh, Mervyn Field uh, got into the business um, by meeting George Gallup, the pollster, when he was a young man and went on to found his own company, uh, thought that the public polls like Gallup did would provide some publicity for people who would come and pay corporations to find out what people thought in other places. But I wanted to play a clip of Mervyn Field talking uh, to folks at UC Berkeley a few years ago about how he became convinced public polling uh, mattered. Here's uh, uh, Mervyn Field in his own words. And this, uh, I could see the um, how this was so helpful and that it was so important to get the public's view. And you could, what the poll did was to bypass the people at the time who were what I would call self-appointed leaders. They'd say, my people think this. Well, we would do a research of his or her people and find out that what they said was different. Uh, what polling did brought uh, the public really into these public and legislative uh, uh, deliberations as to what was good policy. And I just want to talk about a little bit about, uh, about polling um, and how these um, statewide polls that are not from campaigns and others, because that's what uh, uh, Mervyn Field was talking about there, is that once the candidates got away from being able to drive the narrative of what Californians thought, it may have changed the dynamic. But polling is, um, I mean, it's national in politics, but in a state like California, 
the field poll is one of those places that people still look to um, get that pulse of what's going on. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing to to think about. You know, somebody <laughs> at my age that there was a time when the field poll didn't exist. Like it's so synonymous with California politics, and as you said, there's always going to be, you know, I think disagreements um, either sort of on partisan levels or just from individual candidates with what polls show and, you know, the the age old line, the only poll that matters is election day. But these really do shape, I think, a lot of the the narrative of policy and political discussions in this state. And they have for a long time. Um, and it's it is one of the few ones I think that, that those of us in the press can really look at and not sort of be suspicious about because there's so many people out there who do their own surveying and polls. But you always have to sort of question like their motives and who's paying for it. And and, and the field poll is really um, even for I'm sure some people push back on it. It, it stands in a class of its own. Yeah, we, we've seen a lot of sort of it's funny feel uh, the polling industry has is no different than than other forms of media in terms of the the changes that we've seen and i i think um you know it, it still stands that, that that there are some sort of trusted brands in the world of polling um you know and field is definitely one of them i know yeah marisa to your point about private polls i know we we had a policy at, at the los angeles times i i assume it's still there of not writing about a lot of these private polls you know that that uh, that people try to push out you know, to, to promote one point of view or another. I think, you know, um, and there's that issue of trust and, and ensuring that polling is being done objectively and done the right way and there's good science involved. And, I mean, there's always criticisms of various polls when they come out on the margins, the way they ask a particular question or undersampling this this population group, whatever it is. You always see some of that. And I think um, over the last few years, we've seen some more sophisticated understanding of the process of polling um but but there are still only uh only a very small number of polls in california i mean, I think ppic you know the la times and field are the only ones that are that are doing it in a way that uh that the most reporters trust and feel comfortable writing about and it's really interesting you know when i uh was writing on the passing of murfield this week you go back and you look at something that happened very early in his polling career that i think um you know really led him to want to continue to to refine the, the the process but also you know trust the data trust the numbers and be willing to back those numbers up you know the anecdote he told and some of you may have read it in some of the stories was that when he uh, when he opened the field research corporation in california in 1946 one of his first big public polls was the 1948 presidential race tom dewey and uh harry truman um and how he conducted a poll right before the election that showed Dewey and Truman were almost completely tied in the poll, and he just thought the numbers could be were wrong because everyone everywhere had been saying Dewey was going to beat Truman. That's the famous newspaper headline that we've all uh, seen and talked about in our lives. And so Murfield went back in and reassessed, I think even in his interview, that Berkeley interview I played a clip from, he said, I went back in and changed some of the numbers because I think I thought they were wrong. I thought there was a, an error in the calculations. And that poll then showed Dewey ahead when, in fact, uh, the results on Election Day were much more like the poll he had originally done. And I think it, <laughs> it instilled in him this notion of, you know, kind of trusting the numbers. And I want to one other point that the field poll made its own news for the polling and what happened uh, more closer to modern times was the 1982 race for governor. George Duke Majan and Tom Bradley and uh, uh, 
the polls showed that Tom Bradley was going to win, um, or at least was certainly ahead, uh, would, you know, had a very good chance. And then Duke Majin won on Election Day, and there was this whole discussion, and Murfield was part of it and talked about that. Perhaps there were some Californians who didn't want to admit that they wouldn't vote for an African-American, like Tom Bradley, who was the mayor of Los Angeles. And it became called the Bradley effect, whether it was real or perceived, I think, is a source of debate still. Um, but Murfield was always out there. And his um, his protege, Mark DiCamillo, who runs the field poll now, too, has been about trying to defend the accuracy of the poll and the methodology of the polls. And there are political consultants who think the field poll maybe uh, has too much preference for Northern California versus Southern California. And again, the world of politics is always going to beat it up. But I mean, to Maurice's point, you know, the press and to Anthony's point, the press is always looking for someone who will explain the methodology to you. And when you get to those private polls, you don't get people who really want to always explain that methodology. And I think, too, you know, talking about methodology, it's like, well, what are they looking at? Are they looking at likely voters or registered voters? Is that something we always look at in, in the press, right? Like, who who is this uh, group that they've polled? And I think not just because of the accuracy of their polls, which are a snapshot in time, so they change. It's not always fair to say that something that happened, you know, three weeks before the election means that the poll was wrong. Um, but I think, you know, the the they've always been good and continue to be under Mark DiCamillo at really explaining what they're doing and why they're asking these questions and how they're asking them. And I think that that in itself is a real service to the public um, to, to just be sort of upfront about the methodology and, and to give us, you know, as as the folks in the press who, whose job is a lot of times to sort of translate what's happening in Sacramento or elsewhere and political campaigns to the general public, um, that that they make that a lot easier. And, and I think, as you said, PPIC does a great job, too, Anthony, and um, the LA Times poll, though, you know, we're the competitors, so we never like quoting that poll, let's be honest. <laughs> you don't have a poll, do you? KQED poll? I haven't... Well, no, the LA Times always had it first. Um yeah, you know, I guess I'm more speaking in my, my past chronicle life. <laughs> well, and us people in public broadcasting, we're just desperate for anybody to give us the damn poll. But anyway, um, so it just seemed like it was a good moment to talk about that. And, um, you know, it's definitely the end of a of an era in, in, in California politics with someone who saw the state. I mean, think about that from from uh, the 1940s, you know, and the uh, administration of Earl Warren as governor all the way through to the uh, the early 2000s and then the work he did, still working on the press releases and reading the questions, Mark says, uh, up until the very end. So um, a, a great moment there. And I think with that, we're going to we're going to wrap this thing up. But I, I want to poke both of my podcast colleagues here for a moment. What do you think is uh, a scenario to watch for this state budget next week? Because I, I got to kind of get this feeling that we have this vote on the floor of both houses on Monday. If we don't have some kind of great moment announcing a breakthrough with the governor early on, maybe even as soon as Monday, who knows? I mean, maybe all these other scenarios come into play. Anthony, what do you think? No, I think it gets past Monday. I don't think there's a deal Monday. And I think that we see some ongoing negotiations and that there's a signing ceremony probably uh, two weeks from now. Ooh, after the first? Oh, right about the right about the beginning yeah, of the fiscal year. The 20, I'm going to call that the twenty seventh. <laughs> okay, that's a hell of a prediction there, Marisa. You're you're not required to go as far as Anthony, but what do you think? I'm going to be a little more optimistic. I'd say earlier in that week, but I do think that we have uh, certainly at least another week before we see any sort of deal. And um, yeah, I, I think that 
what to look for is kind of what we talked for earlier. Does it appear that legislature just sends this over and kind of brushes their hands off and says, all right, it's your deal? Or are we seeing a lot of sort of meetings and negotiations in earnest? So, you so, know, bold predictions. We don't know. <laughs> so the usual. message to our um, our capital friends is just take a, take a few days off. Don't worry about Monday. It's no big deal. Come back uh, later. Then you'll have something to see. Right. But that's not going to work. Uh, and with that, we will uh, we will wrap up this edition of the California Politics Podcast. Uh, I'm John Myers from KQED News, along with Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project and Marisa Lagos from KQED. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.